You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. And let's open up to Luke chapter 2. As we continue on this Christmas series that we're in, God's Christmas Grace. We have been in a series for the last couple of weeks. This is the third message in the series. And uh, we're looking at God's Christmas Grace. I want to kind of just take a minute and define the word grace. It's a word we use a lot, but we don't really maybe think about the meaning. Grace, it means God's unmerited favor. Unmerited? God's unearned favor. Not because we're so good, not because we deserve it. No, God's unmerited favor. And Christmas is all about God pouring out his unmerited favor upon us, God's Christmas grace. And as I mentioned, third week in the series, uh, we looked a couple of weeks ago at God's Christmas grace by announcing the forerunner of the Messiah, the one that was prophesied, the forerunner of the Messiah, his name, John the Baptist. And you'll remember we looked at uh, the angel came and picks this unusual couple to bring the forerunner for the Messiah in. Their names, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And why they're unusual is because they were a bit well advanced in years, way past the age of childbearing, maybe up in their 80s even. And uh, an angel comes and tells Zacharias, dude, you're going to have a son. He's like, I don't think so. And uh, sure enough, Elizabeth gets pregnant at 70, 80 years of age. And uh, because he doesn't fully believe when he gets the message, he's not able to speak. And in that, God was doing something very powerful. God was using social media. He was getting all of the town, hey, did you hear? Yeah, Elizabeth, 80 years old, I know, now she's pregnant, it's crazy, right? And Zacharias can't talk, and there's like, everybody's going, hey, did you hear? Yeah, I heard, right? And it's like, yeah, and the rumor is, an angel visited him in the temple, and that this is the forerunner of the Messiah. What's God doing? He's getting all of the focus on Jesus. After that, we looked last Sunday, Pastor J.C. taught, and we saw God's Christmas grace in the Immaculate Conception. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Virgin birth, no inherited sin from Adam. The second Adam, the scripture tells us. The first Adam created sinless, but he fell. The second Adam becomes a man. And he lives out his life sinlessly. And we looked at the importance of that last week. Tonight, uh, looking at God's uh, Christmas grace, a little different subject. Might, uh, going to be some interesting things that we jump into tonight. Keep your, your mind focused. Uh, we're looking at God's justice in mercy. God's justice and mercy, and I'll explain more as we get into the story. But right now, let's jump into the text. We're in Luke chapter 2. The classic Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. If you're there, give me a big amen. 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 
Uh, do you have some fun Christmas things planned for tonight, for tomorrow? Everybody got family coming over. I just love Christmas, right? Uh, all the gathering, just amazing. Well, here's the origin of it all. It all starts here. Uh, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I can hear uh, Linus reading this as I... Uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And a census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth where he lived into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Right there, we see a problem. When you're engaged and your wife is pregnant, something went wrong somewhere. And uh, Joseph, we know he struggled with it. He didn't believe it. Uh, he was ready to uh, put Mary away, uh, walk away from her. He thought she cheated on him. Understandable. And God speaks to uh, Joseph through an angel and tells him, no, 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 this is my work. I'm going to use your life powerfully. And now they go and they go into Bethlehem. So it was, verse 6, while they were there, the day, their days were completed for her to be delivered. Uh, that tells us that Mary must have been about nine months pregnant when this decree came out and she has to go to Bethlehem and she gets there. I mean, a tough journey, man. Nine months pregnant on a donkey going 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, and there she gets there and her days are completed and she delivers. And look at this. We can praise the Lord on this. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Uh, the literal word laid him in a feeding trough. It's not a cozy little manger with a fireplace next to it like we all have in our front yards or that we see. All. It's a animal feeding trough, if you can imagine. Because there was no room for them in the end. Uh, here's the Christmas story. And we see that the Christmas story, it was a real event. It was incredibly well documented. Luke, the, the, the author of the book that we're reading right here, he's a doctor. And he gives incredible detail about the story. He says, uh, introduces us to Caesar Augustus and to, to Quirinius. These are real historical leaders. We know that Quirinius was the governor in Syria. We know that Syria is a real place. Right? We just saw that, that bomb blew up in Lebanon just four months ago, right? Lebanon used to be part of Syria. These are real places. These are real leaders. Uh, archaeological evidence shows them, right? We know Caesar Augustus. He was a brilliant leader. He ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. He brought, brought around Pax Roma, for, for those of you who remember your history classes, right? Uh, a great leader. And here he orders this census to tax the people. And everyone has to go to their hometown. 
For me, that would me and Lisa, that would be Chula Vista. What would it be for you? Where would you have to go? Well, for Joseph and Mary, it was Bethlehem. And they leave and uh, Nazareth, and they go to Bethlehem, and again, about a 70-mile journey to, to there. And unknowingly, both Caesar Augustus and Joseph and Mary are fulfilling an ancient Hebrew prophecy. Given over 700 years in advance, 700 years before Christ came. A prophecy, of course, from the book of Micah. And I want to put it on your screens for you. Micah chapter 5, because it's a fascinating prophecy to look at. Uh, read this with me, a one thundering voice. I love hearing the, the church just read out God's word. There's people watching online. I don't want them to hear from their TVs. I want them to hear from the reverberation of your voices. So let's go for that. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet out of you shall come forth one to be a ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Yeah, some interesting points. Bethlehem, not a real nice city, not like Rancho Santa Fe, no kind of dumpy and slumpy. It's really a a armpit of a town. I've been there, and it's nothing has changed, apparently. He says, hey, look, it's a small, little, just a nothing part of Israel. Yet out of you, notice what he says, will come one to be a ruler in Israel. And this is why I wanted to bring you here. Notice what it says. Who's going forth are from old, even from everlasting. Who is that a reference to? Who is the eternal one from everlasting? God. God. And this Messiah who's going to come. And the reason God brings them down to Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy. This is God in the flesh. The promised one that was spoken of from the beginning of time. Jesus did not come into existence at the incarnation. He is the eternal God that always was. In John's gospel, it speaks of him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him, and without him was nothing made. And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Wow! Wow, this is the eternal God. This was the promise, and here he is. And he comes to Bethlehem uh, under the order of Caesar Augustus. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself. Uh, sometimes life gets difficult, right? And when life gets difficult, when we're going through hard times, uh, when you're having impossible situations, maybe you're in one right now. An impossible situation. May you be encouraged. God used this pagan king who knew nothing about him. And God used Joseph and Mary who knew nothing about this prophecy. And he moved everything, moved the whole world to get his will done. Uh, our impossible situations are no problem for God whatsoever. 
There's some other interesting insights we can get from this as well. You would think that since Joseph and Mary were chosen by God to bring the Messiah, the one that was prophesied from the beginning of time that he was going to come, God in the flesh, you would think that since God was using them to bring the Messiah into the world, that their life would be on easy street, wouldn't you? And we often think that as we, we, you know, once we give our lives to Christ or once we make Jesus Lord and we start following him, we, well, surely doors will just open for me now. And yet that's not what real Christianity is. Real Christianity is not the absence of problems. It's God's presence in the midst of problems so that our life looks different than others. It's not fantasy island, it's a relationship with God, and he leads us. Think about what Mary and Joseph are going through. Since God has called them, their life has gotten much more difficult. For one, it caused more than a bit of a rub in their relationship, understandable. God, God fixed that up. But also then, imagine the taunting and the jeering that happened to Mary, to Joseph. You're marrying a Who? Do you know? I mean, what? Oh, they called Jesus derogatory terms. They called him a bastard. I can imagine the the problems that Joseph and Mary were having. Furthermore, then you find out it's not a quarantine, but it's a census at nine months pregnant, and you've got to go 70 miles on a donkey, oy vey, right? And maybe it's that donkey ride, I don't know, but she gives birth as soon as she gets there before she even gets checked in anywhere, and no place opens up for her. No room in the inn. No room in the inn. No room for Jesus. Why? Why? It's hard to imagine any pregnant woman being left out in the cold to deliver a baby. It's hard to imagine people being so insensitive that they wouldn't give her a room and they'd say, well, you can use the, the cow trough or the sheep trough. It's hard to imagine that for any woman giving birth, for any baby, and yet this child is the Messiah. This child is the promised one of God. This is the one that all the world has been waiting for. The one the prophets spoke about from the beginning of time. And there's no room for him? And he's birthed in an animal trough? What is God doing? I really believe that God is speaking to us. That he is showing us a reality of what he deals with, not just 2,000 years ago on the first Christmas, but every day, all the time. We just don't have any room for God in our lives. We're just too busy. We're just too preoccupied. We're just too self-absorbed, too selfish to make room for Jesus. Somehow we can watch 20 hours of TV in a week. We can do all kinds of social media. We can do all kinds of things, but we just don't have time this world we don't for Jesus. And I believe it's a picture. Oh, I'm not trying to condemn. I'm not trying to blame. I'm just stating a reality that God is showing us. 
And as I was thinking about this, I thought about how would you like to be that innkeeper who had no room for whatever reason, too busy, wanted the money, whatever, I don't know. How would you like to be that innkeeper when he dies and he stands before the Lord at his throne? What excuse are you going to give at that time? It would be inadequate. And so may we pay attention to the message God is showing us. May we open our hearts. May we allow, uh, you know, room for him in our lives. Here's another thing to consider. If Joseph is going to the hometown of David, so the prophecy might be fulfilled, being in the lineage of David, just as God promised, that he might be born in Bethlehem, shouldn't he have family there in Bethlehem? Shouldn't there be some distant cousins or a family member of some kind to open the door? Why maybe would they not let them come in? Why maybe would they not give them a room? Why maybe would they not give them a bed? Let me hear some answers from you. What do you think? What's that? Baby out of wedlock. Wow. Maybe with high brow, they looked down on them and said, not in my house. And we see some things that keep us too busy for Jesus. Too selfish, too preoccupied, too busy, and too self-righteous to allow Jesus into our lives. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so, with, while the whole world was too busy to make room for Jesus, God does something interesting. He takes the message of Jesus to the lowly shepherds of Israel. And I find this so awesome because, uh, uh, I'm going to ask a, a foolish question, but just to get the wheels turning. Shepherds, what are they raising? Sheep. And what are sheep used for in Israel? Sacrifice. Sheep were used for sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? Well, they were used for substitutionary atonement. They were used for a Passover sacrifice. They were the ones who raised the Passover sacrifices. What was that? A Passover sacrifice, you would bring your hand upon the animal, you would confess your sins on the animal, and that animal would die in your place. And all of those sacrifices were a foreshadow, were a picture of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. And when John the Baptist, the forerunner, saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All those Passover sacrifices, they were nothing more than a foreshadow. They could not take away any sins. They were all pointing to what was coming, the Messiah. And God, when he goes to give the announcement, the world is too busy for him. So he goes to the shepherds who have raised the Passover lambs. And he says, the real Passover lamb is here. Isn't that awesome? Let's look what he does. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Shepherds of Bethlehem, in other words. And they're keeping watch over their flock by night. You know what that means? They were good shepherds. Everybody say good shepherds. 
And here we see God reveals himself more to those who follow. The good shepherds, right? They're just those who are doing the right things. Uh, They were shepherding their flock, watching over in the night. And verse 9, and behold, an angel, an angel, one single angel, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And I want you to notice this. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The whole night sky just illuminated and they were greatly afraid. God's glory illuminating through just one angel lights up the entire night sky and causes these shepherds to fall on their faces in fear and trembling. The glory of one angel. Interesting. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings. Or in other words, good news. I got some great news for you, in other words. It's going to bring you great joy. And it's a message for all people. So this message is for you. Verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is not his name, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that is promised. Uh, And Lord is a position of authority, a Savior who is the Messiah, who is also our Lord, our authority. And this will be a sign to you. I can imagine the, 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 the shepherds going, a sign. Yeah, what's the sign? I mean, if one angel illuminates the whole night sky, what is it going to be when the Messiah is born? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's going to be incredible when he comes. I bet they're just the whole, the whole world is lit up, probably brighter than the noonday sun. I bet there's just all kinds of thunderings and voices and powerful displays. What will the sign be, they're wondering, if they fall on their face from one angel? Look at this. This will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, in an animal trough. What? Did I read that correctly? This will be the sign of the Messiah, God in the flesh? He'll be wrapped in rags and he'll be laying in a dog bowl, in a sheep's pen. What? Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Can you imagine? How great was it having those kids singing up there? Can you imagine a multitude of angels? The Greek word for the multitude there is plethos, which where we get our English word plethora, it just means a myriad of angels proclaiming his birth. One angel illuminated the whole night sky. What does a plethos of them do? Oh my gosh. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into the heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they came with haste. In other words, they hauled buns. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger, exactly as the angel had said. Uh, Verse 17. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. I'm sure it was very confusing for them. Uh, Oh my gosh, such a humble birth. Verse 18. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told by them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Imagine that 70-mile journey and then giving birth in an animal's barn uh, and then eight days later baptize, excuse me, uh, circumcising him and they name him Jesus, the name that was given before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus, by the way, uh, comes from the Hebrew name uh, Joshua or Yehoshua and the name literally means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation, God in the flesh. And so here we have this most peculiar story, the Christmas story. And boy, I hope you take time this Christmas. I hope you take time even tonight, tomorrow, to just ponder and to meditate on the miracle of the Incarnation. May our hearts be filled with awe. I meditated on this week and I just thought, oh my gosh, why did God become a man? And why such a humble birth? Why did he leave heaven to come to earth and to come as a baby? Why didn't he come like Brad Pitt on steroids in the fullness of the Shekinah glory of God and just illuminate everything like a giant radiant beam of light? Why not? But he comes as a baby. Seems like a fairy tale. Seems almost mythological. Seems too hard to believe. And yet 2,000 years later, here we are, the whole world celebrating his birth. Even atheists celebrating his birth. How do you explain that? Jesus changed the world. No one in history remotely, even slightly remotely as influential as Jesus. How do you explain that? Especially when you look at who he was and what he did. He had no political office. He had no money. He was homeless. And he changed the world, a homeless man. He did not associate with the rich and powerful. He cared about the poor and the down and out. He had no political agenda, and yet he changed the world. All history dates to his birth or after his birth. How do you explain that? Not only that, his book has been a bestseller through all time. A New York Times bestseller. Do you know how many many copies a New York Times bestseller has to sell to be a bestseller? New York Times... 10,000 copies. The Bible, it sells 100 million copies every single year, year in, year out. How do you explain that? 
Ever since the printing press was invented, the Bible has been the best-selling book in the world. And before the printing press, it was the best-selling scroll in the world. And they cost a fortune. So how do we explain all that? Again, why did God become a man? The Christmas story reveals something that you probably have not thought about at Christmas before. I want you to ponder it now. I want to stretch your mind, if I may. The Christmas story reveals that God had a huge dilemma in bringing salvation to man. A huge dilemma. What dilemma was that? Well, God has attributes that cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's two of his attributes that were a major problem in bringing salvation to man. Number one, God is just. Secondly, God is merciful. He has a lot of other attributes too, but I want to focus on these two attributes. And let me ask you a question. Is he sometimes just? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always just. Is he sometimes merciful? No, he's always merciful. And here he has a major problem. God created man. God loves man. But man is incredibly sinful. Wicked to the core. Total depravity is the theological term. Man is sinful and corrupt and manipulating and selfish and prideful and in rebellion to God and arrogant and always just thinking about his own kingdom, not about anybody else's, much less God's. How then can God bring salvation to that man and still be just? God desires to forgive our sins and desires to forgive our wickedness, but he has a problem. He's a just judge. And he cannot just pardon sin. And this is God's big dilemma. It would be radically unjust for God to set sinners like me, sinners like you, free. It would be radically unjust. Without requiring a just payment for our sins. And to illustrate how big God's problem is, I'd like to tell you a story. There was a powerful judge who ruled in a prestigious court. He was renowned. This powerful judge was also a very kind and loving man. And he got tired of seeing all the lives ruined by sin and imprisonment. It wasn't doing any good. All the prison terms. And he saw the lives ruined by crime, by corruption, by stealing, by rape, by drug use, by murder. And this judge made a decision. And he said, all the criminals who come before my court from now on, I am going to let them go and I am going to set them free. And so, the next day, court is open. And it's a wicked financial planner. He has operated a Ponzi scheme. How many of you know what that is? Ponzi scheme. Okay, good. He's taking money and he's not investing it. He's using it for himself and he's, he's just a wicked investor. And so the judge says, it's okay. I forgive you. You're forgiven. You're set free. And right as he does... An old widow in the courtroom 
stands up and says, Your Honor, that man took everything my husband ever worked for. He took my house. He took my savings. He took my livelihood. Everything my husband ever worked for, I've lost. And I'm an old woman. What do you want me to do? Next, there was a drug dealer who sold illicit drugs and ruined many lives. And he stands before the judge and the judge says, not guilty, you're free to go. And a mom stands up in the courtroom with tears in her eyes and she says, your honor, this man sold drugs to my 15-year-old son and I lost him. How can you just let him go? And oh, I could go on and on and give more examples, but you get what I'm talking about. People were furious at this unjust judge. Protests broke out. Riots kindled. Uh, people were upset. The, this judge is radically unjust. The media covered it. Uh, it was, they were appalled. They were horse-struck. Uh, even CNN covered the, the unjust judge. And, and, Everyone was up in turmoil. This judge is unjust. Now what I'm trying to paint for you is this is God's dilemma with man. God wants to forgive sinners who have lied, who have cheated, who have been selfish, who have been prideful and arrogant, who have been immoral, who have only lived for their kingdom, never even thought about, who are just so self-righteous they don't even think they need a savior. And he wants to forgive them. But it would be radically unjust for God to do so. And the Christmas story reveals God's brilliant solution to God's big dilemma. God chose a man. Excuse me. God chose to become a man. And to live his life as a regular man. And as a man, God would go to a cross to take the full punishment of all of my sin and all of your sin so that he could be just and merciful. And thus in Jesus Christ, God is both merciful and just and he did not deny his own character. No sin goes unpunished. No sin is pardoned. Both God's mercy and God's justice are completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. But I want you to know something. The price was incredibly high. The holy God had to become a man and he had to go to the cross on our behalf. And you say, hey, I don't get it. I don't fully agree. Couldn't God just do whatever he wanted? Couldn't just he forgive who he wants to? And the answer is unequivocally no, he can't. For he cannot deny his own self. He cannot deny his nature. And in order for God to remain just, he cannot pardon sin. It must be paid for. And you'll remember, Jesus went to the cross. He went to Gethsemane. And there before he was going to the cross, in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. And what did he pray? Lord, if it is possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. And there was no other way. And so the Christmas story is amazing. God enters into human history, but not as you would think. 
He doesn't come in majesty and splendor. He doesn't come in thundering magnificence. He doesn't come in his Brad Pitt on steroids with Shekinah glory radiating out of his body. He comes as a human baby. And the Christmas story is remarkable. He comes as a man, as a baby, fathom this, vaginally born baby, he enters the world. Astonishing to ponder. Just astonishing. And he does all this to pay the penalty of our sin. To partake of flesh and bone just like you and I so he can go to the cross and take the punishment of our sin that divine justice requires so that we can be saved from sin and go to heaven and have just the fullness of of joy uh, by his gift. And that's what Christmas is all about. He calls it salvation. He calls it being born again. And the Christmas story reveals how God accomplished this magnificent feat. And to this the angels shouted. Look what they shout in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace and goodwill towards men. Glory to God in the highest. This baby in a manger. I mean one angel illuminated the whole sky. And this baby is just in rags. Glory to God in the highest. Here are you sure? I would think glory to God in the highest. When the angel illuminated the sky. I would think glory to God in the highest. When you look at a mountain range with snow capped peaks. And you're just in awe at the majesty of God. I would think glory to God in the highest when you lay under the desert stars in the night and you look up into the galaxies and you go, oh my gosh, God, how big are you? I would think glory to God in the highest when you go to the beach and you're sitting with your spouse and you have a nice little meal right at sunset on the beach and you watch the sun come down with all the hues and the colors and you think, God, you didn't have to make it that beautiful and yet you do it every single day. Glory to God in the highest. But not according to God. God says glory to God in the highest when you realize with this child that you can't understand now that looks so insignificant when you realize what he is doing. It is God in the flesh purchasing your salvation. And when you understand that, you will praise him. You will glorify him. You will say, God, you are amazing. I cannot believe you love me that much. Glory to God in the highest. And then notice what happens. What follows glory to God in the highest? Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. How so? Oh, when I am glorifying Jesus as the Lord of my life, something miraculous happens. When I take myself off the throne and I'm no longer about my glory, but I'm actually living for the glory of Jesus, something marvelous happens. Peace with man and goodwill on earth. You see, something happens when I glorify God, when I make Jesus the Lord of my life. Three things happen. Number one, I have peace with God. Number two, I have peace with self. And number three, I have peace with others. It is all the byproduct 
of glorifying Jesus for his great redemptive acts towards me, towards you. Oh, we all want the peace that surpasses understanding. But it comes from the proper lordship of Jesus Christ. And in order to have it, we have to understand how great the gift he gave us is. I want to close. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up so we can do our candlelight service. I want to close jumping back to chapter 1 and look at verse 68. Uh, look what was being prophesied about this coming Messiah. Look at this, verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For he, that's the Lord God of Israel, has visited us and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation, what is that? A horn in the Bible always refers to power. Power. He has raised up the power of salvation for us. And look what he says. He has raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Yeah, he promised it would be in David's lineage and the throne of David. As he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been sharing this message since the world began. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, uh, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, was preaching about Jesus Christ. 315, 316 messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. All the prophets been speaking from the beginning of time about this one that we're celebrating tonight. And look what it says, verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies. That we should be saved. What are our enemies? Well, our enemies are sin. Our enemies are temptation. Our enemies are our own flesh. Our enemies are our guilty conscience. Our enemies are the depression that we get when we realize how messed up we are. He's come to save us from all of that. Oh, and I'm so glad. Do you know why? Because I need saving. What I need more than anything else is not a new Apple laptop, not a new car, not a new purse if you're a woman or a dress if you're a woman or a ring if you're a woman. What I need, what you need more than anything else is saving. And he came that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy. There it is. The justice and the mercy of God coming together on the cross of Jesus Christ. To perform the mercy that God promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath, the promise which he swore to our father Abraham. God had promised Abraham that the Messiah was going to come through your lineage, through Israel. And to grant us, I love this, these last two verses, look at this. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, sin, temptation, evil, and our own flesh, might serve him without fear. Wow. Dave, how can you stand up there and preach a message after you've sinned? Here's why. I have a Savior, and now I can serve him without fear. I don't stand here in my righteousness. I stand here in His. 
Dave, how can you be so at peace when you die? Oh, I have no fear when I die because I have a Savior. I can stand before Him without fear. That is what He has done for us. That is the miracle of Christmas. That is His divine work. We might serve Him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And that is God's Christmas grace. God is just. God is merciful. He will not pardon our sin. But if we will come to Him in faith and say, Lord, I believe what You've done for me. He says, to whoever comes to me, I will grant them forgiveness and salvation. I wonder if there are any here that need to make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of their life. You've been one who's had no room for Jesus in your life. Oh, this could be the best Christmas gift you've ever received. I want to give an opportunity. I'm not going to belabor it. I'm not going to give an emotional plea because this is not an emotional decision. This is a decision to grasp and to ponder and to comprehend what God has done to redeem you. It was an incredibly high price. And if you would like to receive that forgiveness, if you would like to make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you would like to make room for Him in your life, I want to give you an opportunity. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes, and just pray. If you would like to give your life to the Lord, if you would say, Jesus, I need a Savior. I want to be forgiven. I, I want to receive your mercy. I understand you're a just judge. Lord, that is me. Please save me. Just raise your hand to the Lord right now. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And you. I'm not going to belabor it. I'm not going to ask again. If anyone would like to receive the gift of salvation, it's available. God's Spirit is calling. Do not push Him off. You say, well, maybe I'll do it later. To be undecided is to make a decision. I don't need it now. Anyone else, raise your hand to the Lord. Say, I need to be saved. God bless you up in the balcony. God bless you. Lord, you see all these hands that have been raised to you. Many others, Lord, online and in cars. And Lord, we just ask that you would remember all that you did to purchase our salvation. Jesus, we know it is your great delight to give us eternal life. And as many as call upon the name of the Lord will be saved to all who call upon Him in spirit and in truth. Ask the Lord to wash away your sin. Ask the Lord to forgive you. Acknowledge that you sinned against Him and acknowledge that you believe that He died on the cross in your place. He took the punishment of your sin and eternal life is yours. Jesus, I personally thank you for forgiving me of my sins which are many and I thank you for your gift of eternal life and the gift of the upward call of walking with you and being ever before your presence, even now on earth and in the ages to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said?
you may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.